Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're entering the Christian season of Advent with a reading from Jeremiah 33. The text given to us by the narrative lectionary is Jeremiah 33, 14 to 18, a lovely text about a righteous king from the house of David who will restore Jerusalem. But the hope offered by that short text seems naive in the context of the rest of Jeremiah 33, which takes place against the backdrop of the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, with Jeremiah in prison, anticipating the destruction of the city yet to come. In that context, the passage speaks a word of hope, but one muted by the pain and suffering that must yet be endured for an unjust world to be dismantled and for a righteous one to take its place. We struggle with this text, to be honest. And for the first time ever, one of us has added a postscript to the podcast after mulling it over for a day or two. Welcome to Advent, y'all. This text is painful, but it is also beautiful. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy. Hello, my friend. We are headed into the season of Advent in the Christian world with this episode of the podcast. Yes. Is that exciting, exciting for you? It, I mean, <laughs> my daughter is completely obsessed with Christmas rituals. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I should. It's probably offensive to everyone on all sides. But she, <laughs> but she just, she loves the trappings of Christmas. Like really since Halloween has been like, it's Christmas. And, yeah. you know, listens to whatever. And was joking the other day that, she was going to start saying Merry Christmas to everyone. And if they said, I'm Jewish, she could say, actually, I am too. So am I. <laughs> That's really but funny. Merry Christmas. Let's sing I, a Christmas carol. I think it points out something really important about Christmas, which we talk about from time to time. But Christmas is both a Christian holiday and also this sort of cultural festival that has yeah. still has Christian roots, but it has sort of transcended and moved on to become sort of a capitalist enterprise yeah. you know <laughs> uh, uh, you kind of darkened that the you darkened that a little bit yeah, by I mean, going capitalist that is true yeah that is true so it's i mean it's interesting like both being a jewish person who <laughs> tells people merry christmas but i mean it makes total sense in that in that sense of like the cultural festival and then also i you know one of the things that i think i probably say every year is just the difficulty of being christian in the season yes. of advent Yes. Which is supposed to be a time of reflection and sort of tense anticipation, like recognizing the difficulty of the world in which we live and this sort of hope of the Messiah coming into the world. Mm. And you're really like jingle bells is not really the thing. Yeah, that is not the the season quite. I mean, there's anticipation, but it doesn't have that tension in it culturally, you know, if you're taken out of any religious context. Yeah, I think I think it is. It's hard what what the Christian community is asked to do to hold this sort of cultural holiday and also 
the the religious piece of it is there a little bit in tension. There's, you know, there's 12 days of Christmas actually that begin on the 25th and last until Epiphany on January the 6th. And so in theory, Christians are supposed to kind of be in that celebratory jingle bellsy mood from the 25th for 12 days. But Mm -hmm. the the culture moves on after on the 20, like by the afternoon of Christmas day, it's like, well, Christmas is over. And then here comes New Year's, I guess. Or Wouldn't it be funny if you had an advent calendar that somehow tried to like draw out the tent, the tension <laughs> and the difficulties? Yeah. <laughs> That'd be terrible. Yeah. And amazing. It would be amazing. I might work on that. We should have a Bible Worm advent calendar yes, next year that's like, I almost said yesteryear. <laughs> who, says, <laughs> who says yesteryear? Wow. We should have had a Bible Worm advent calendar yesteryear. We should have. And it could draw out all the... All bad the, things yeah. happening in the world. That's great. Like this text that we have before us today is a really difficult Advent text, yeah. especially the way that Bible Worm, you know, is going to approach it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The text as the narrative lectionary has it is Jeremiah chapter 33. The verses 14 to 18 is kind of the core narrative lectionary text. And then it also gives us the option of adding in verses 10 and 11. In our conversation we decided that really we want to do 33, one to 18. At least I decided that. Did you? Did you? And I'm, I'm I, running the show I am today. on board. <laughs> yeah. I'm on the train. Because yeah. it really changes. Like this 14 to 18 is a really beautiful passage, but it's sort of this, that's a little bit of a sort of naive anticipation of the arrival of some sort of yeah. messianic yeah. future. But when you contextualize it within verses one to 18, it takes on a whole different feeling to yes. it which yeah. I think is maybe more, I, I don't know, for me as a Christian reading this text as I prepare for Advent, it sort of helps me reframe Advent a little bit too. Yeah. So Amy, we are, we've been moving in and out of prophetic texts just a little bit. Last week we were talking about the discovery of the scroll of Torah in the reign of Josiah in Second mm-hmm. Kings 22 and 23. This week, we're back in the prophetic texts with Jeremiah, and we're going to be in Jeremiah 33, but I think it might be worthwhile just to get a sense of who Jeremiah is and Mm -hmm. what he was about and how he was related to other things we've been talking about. Do you want to get us started thinking about that? Yeah, let let me tell you some things that feel important to me about Jeremiah, and then you can help fill in the picture however makes sense from your perspective. So historically, we haven't moved that much. Jeremiah started to prophesy during the reign of King Josiah and then continued to prophesy through the next two kings, all the way through the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the Babylonian exile, which was around 587 to 586. So historically, we're, we're, we're really close to where we were. Josiah, I mean, just by virtue of the fact that he was prophesying through this time, like up up through the destruction, really the the destruction of the nation. Yeah. He really he grappled with like the hardest and most painful and most terrifying period in the history of the biblical people of Israel. Yes. Mm-hmm. And his writings a little more than the other prophets, you'll see a little bit more of him personally, not so much in Jeremiah 33, but like he really, 
you can feel his anguish and his empathy for the suffering of his people and his frustration with the people for their behaviors and his outrage at God for putting him in this position and just sort of seeing the writing on the wall of of what's going to happen, but also his belief that the people would return and rebuild eventually. Yes. Eventually. Mm -hmm. Uh, His overall message was, we've got to follow Torah, including all of its moral implications, not so different from the other prophets that we've read, not so different from Josiah. Mm -hmm. And this was a little more controversial. We must submit to Babylon yeah. Or suffer the consequences yeah. of that. And this view made him very unpopular with the kings <laughs> of his day. And he was kind of seen as a traitor because he was basically saying, we need to just lie down and take it. And you can imagine in our time how that would. Right. I mean, yeah, you sound like a traitor. Yeah. If you're like, we just need to, we shouldn't try to get out of this situation. We need to accept our punishment. Like that's <laughs> not going to fly politically. And so he is in and out of being imprisoned by the king of his own people as a Mm -hmm. traitor. And so that's where we find him, you know, at the beginning of 33, it says he is confined in a prison compound as, as he is sometimes because, because he is in, in deep tension with the government of his time. What else would you add about Jeremiah? Being a prophet is a rough life, man. (laughs) I know. Yeah. It really it really, really is. You know, and I was thinking as you were doing that, just sort of the some words about why we're reading the longer chapter of Jeremiah. You know, I just have been studying through this whole book with my weekly uh, Torah study that. group in the synagogue. Yeah, we are just finishing it this week, actually. Oh, wow. And I will say, even just reading chapter 33 without all the things that come before and come after it, it's just really hard to understand the magnitude of the anguish. Yeah. Jeremiah is it, you know, there are some some lovely verses of encouragement that are sometimes plucked out of context. <laughs> but for me to try to take them without uh, without the like stark recognition of all the suffering is, um, I don't know. Yeah. They lose something. You were mentioning that this text that we're reading today in Jeremiah 33 occurs when Jeremiah is in prison. If you go back a chapter to chapter 32, you get the notice, Jeremiah received the Lord's word in the 10th year of Judah's king Zedekiah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. And at that time, the army of the Babylonian king had surrounded Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined to the prison quarters in the palace of Judah's king. If we just linger over that description for a minute, what has happened, if you read 2 Kings 25, Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem in the ninth year of Zedekiah. Jerusalem is going to be breached by the Babylonian army in the 11th year of Zedekiah. That's when the the army comes through the wall and they burn the temple. Our story today takes place at least in the 10th year or maybe even a little later of Zedekiah. So the Babylonian army has been outside sieging the city for at least a year. We're still some time away from when they're going to actually come and breach the wall. But of course, nobody knows that in the, like actively at this moment. And as you were saying, Jeremiah is confined in prison by the king because he's been saying, Hey y'all, we just need to submit. Like this thing is going to happen and we just need to take our blows. And so this is, I mean, if you think about a, a, a city that has been under siege for a year, (laughs) 
things are starting to get real. And some of the biblical descriptions that we have of the siege of Jerusalem are they're just brutal about the kind of things that people had to do to survive. And so I think at this moment, maybe it's just starting to settle in that this, this thing is going to be really bad. Yeah. So we'll pick up then with Jeremiah 33, verse 1. And I'm reading in the Common English Bible. While he was still confined to the prison quarters, the Lord's word came to Jeremiah a second time. The Lord proclaims, the Lord who made the earth, who formed and established it, whose name is the Lord. Call to me and I will answer and reveal to you wondrous secrets that you haven't known. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, proclaims about the houses of this city and the palaces of the kings of Judah that were torn down to defend against the siege ramps and weapons of the invading Babylonians. They will be filled with corpses of those slain in my fierce anger. I hid my face from the people of this city because of all their evil deeds, but now I will heal and mend them. I will make them whole and bless them with an abundance of peace and security. I will bring back the captives of Judah and Israel, and I will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them of all the wrongdoing they committed against me, and I will forgive them for all of their guilt and rebellion. Then this city will bring me great joy, praise, and renown before all nations on earth when they hear of all the good I provide for them. They will be in total awe at all the good and prosperity I provide for them. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I want to start with this image in verse 4 and 5 of the houses of the city and the palaces of the kings torn down and filled with corpses. Yeah. How, how do you envision that? What do you think is the significance of that? To think about people's like homes. Okay. So there, I, I see sort of two things, like just the houses and then the palaces. And so the houses as sort of this really sort of like intimate space of safety and the the level of like violation of personal violation that comes with having your house destroyed, mm-hmm. let alone filled with corpses, is known by many people who have experienced war in many parts of the yes. world and still happens today. And to have that sort of alongside the palaces being destroyed, Mm -hmm. like the palaces are more like symbolic of, it doesn't have that intimacy at all, but it has that sort of, it's symbolic of, of, of the, the power and the dignity of the nation as a group. You know, it's, uh, it's more, it's, it's like both the symbol is being brought down low and this really sort of personal intimate space is being Mm -hmm. brought down low and to have them, Filled with dead bodies. I mean, again, it's just I I have not lived through anything like this personally in my life, but the accounts that I have read mm-hmm. of of war and destruction around the world. I mean, this this is exactly what it's like. That mm-hmm. suddenly spaces that were once beautiful and symbolically important literally become morgues. Mm-hmm. It's pretty bad, Bobby. This is bad. It's really bad. I, I appreciate the way you're talking about that, Amy. And what it's making me think of is. You know, so often these sorts of conflicts come out of the palaces, right? It's decisions that are made in the upper echelons of society where people are choosing what kind of 
policy positions to take and what, you know, the Zedekiah had decided to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar and try to throw off his rule and withhold tribute. And, you know, these were decisions that the people in their houses on the streets had no part in. Maybe they had opinions about it. I don't know. But these decisions were made in the high reaches of the government. And yet when the destruction comes, it's not just the palaces that pay the consequences. It is also the houses of the regular folk and maybe especially the houses of the regular folk. And I just think it's important in this context, but also in, in our time and all times to keep in mind the the toll of these kinds of political decisions among people who are just living their lives and trying to get by and has huge effects for, for people mm-hmm. and, and their livelihood. And this is just sort of like a clarifying question, I think. This hasn't happened yet, has it? This is like sort of this, it's it's like the, the horror that's on the way to the yeah. hope. Is that right? I think that's right, Amy. So I was reading the, like those verb tenses. Yeah, and my translation has has things tensed a little bit differently. Oh, than interesting. Says, but so the it's clearly the, complicated. The way the CEB has it is the palaces and the houses that were torn down mm-hmm. will be filled with corpses, mm-hmm. which to me suggests that we're in the moment mm-hmm. where, you know, the army's pressing against the wall. You realize the fortifications are not substantial enough. You say, we've got to tear down all of these places to reinforce the wall. And you think maybe that has done the trick, right? So you're in this mm-hmm. moment of the last desperate attempt to defend the city. And so this, they will be filled says, I know you're trying to defend the city, but this is, this is inevitable. And the army's Mm -hmm. coming in. That's how I read it in my Mm -hmm. translation. What would you say about that from the JPS? The JPS actually has both in the past tense. Oh, interesting. the, The houses that were torn down were filled with those who went to fight the Chaldeans and it's funny then that since both of mine are past tense, I'm like, this is something happening in the future, right? Which prophecy is <laughs> just so weird that way. It I is. get a little turned around. Yeah. And you're right. This is the destruction is unfolding, and the people may think that they have hit bottom, but we as readers know they have not yet hit right. bottom. Right. Amy, this prophecy begins with the narrator. I guess it's Jeremiah speaking, although it's in the third person. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah. Anyway, what I'm interested in is it says in verse two, the Lord proclaims. And then there's this sort of descriptor, right? The Lord who made the earth, who formed and established it, whose name is the Lord. Call me and I will reveal wondrous secrets. Why do you think, or what is the effect of introducing God? Like you could have simply said, the Lord proclaims a second time and then gone into that prophecy. But instead we get this sort of declaration about who God is. Do you have any thoughts about that? We do. And you know, Bobby, my translation is really different here. And I th- I think looking at the Hebrew that I would make a case for mine. Mine says in verse two, thus said the Lord who is planning it, the Lord who is mm. shaping it to bring it about, whose name is Lord. Oh, that is very different. It's very oh, different. Oh, I'm looking at the Hebrew now too. And I think you're actually yeah. right about that. Right. Adonai Yotzerotach. And the question is, what is that? pronoun referring right. to what is the pronoun referring to but the earth is entirely 
important here. And so I read that as like, who is, who is planning what is happening? Like God, who is doing this thing, all the things, the good ones and the bad ones, or the punishing ones and the healing ones. Oh, I see. I'm looking at the, yes, the Septuagint, uh, the Uh, Greek translation has the earth and you're right. The Hebrew has it. And the, you know, the, the, the relationship of the Greek and Hebrew in Jeremiah is exceedingly complicated. Mm. It's a lot of places. It seems like the Greek actually preserves an older tradition than the Hebrew does. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to know, but this seems like yeah. one of those places where if I were a Septuagint translator and I saw this, I would stick the earth in there because <laughs> it makes it sound like more positive instead of like yeah. God is planning this destruction. Okay, so on the one hand, it's disturbing to think about God who is planning it now because the it is not just the healing. The it is also right. the destruction before the healing. Yes. It also puts God in a unique position to be able to explain these things or to sort of lay out these you know, wondrous secrets right. to Jeremiah that really are very difficult to understand. They're difficult for me to understand as a reader how these how how can you already be planning for the heal the healing when you haven't even done the destruction, but you're still going to do the destruction? Like how how do you hold all those things together? Right. But if you think of God as Yotzer, the like it's like this almost pottery image. Like I'm the one I'm the one forming this yes. whole situation. I'm the one making it. Really, re- it's like this really intimate connection between what's unfolding and God. And so you can trust you can you can trust that God knows what is going to happen. I love that connection back to Yotzer, which I had not, I mean, I was hearing the Hebrew, but then when you said it's almost like pottery image. So first of all, that's a famous image elsewhere in Jeremiah of the potter who can Mm, make the pot and then spoil it and remake it. But in our conversation, that's also the word that was in Genesis chapter two in the creation story when God formed the human, which actually connects this back to the other way of reading this, which is about the formation of the earth. Yes, I read that as the God who has the power to form the earth from Mm -hmm. tohu vavohu, from uh, formlessness and void, can also create this thing that is being prophesied to you now. So Mm -hmm. it's both about the power of God to shape the future in the way that God has shaped the world, and also about this sort of the complexity of that shaping can both have a painful element and also a uh, hopeful element. All of that can be held together because this God is such a powerful God. Yeah. In verse five, we get the sort of motivation of God in this destruction phase. I hid my face from the people of this city because of their evil deeds. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that theology of God's hidden face and what you do with that? Mm, You know, it's so, that's such a good question. And it's so interesting in this rendition of it in particular, often I think of this sort of like theological idea of God hiding God's face, almost like the passage we were reading in Isaiah where like Mm. God removes the hedge. Like I'm not, I'm going to stop saving you from yourselves. Like, (laughs) And I'm not going to sort of shine my countenance upon you and, yeah. and shower you with blessing. But it doesn't have, to me, it doesn't carry this idea of like active, rageful destruction, which I, I feel like this passage a little bit has that too. I mean, it has, 
at least in my translation, the corpses of the men whom I struck down in my anger and Mm -hmm. rage. Mm -hmm. And in that context, hiding my face from this city almost is like, I'm not even going to look at what I'm doing. Like, I'm not going to look at the destruction that I myself am bringing upon the city because— Almost like because we know God is a compassionate God, and if God saw the the work of God's own hand, that it would be too much. Mm-hmm. But that's a different that's a different sort of spin on the God's hidden face theology than I usually hear. It it is, but it connects so nicely to that Hosea eleven passage that we were talking about last week, where God is angry and then says, "No, no, no, I'm not going to be angry." because gods are compassionate and so I'm going to be compassionate. Mm. And then here we see God actually acting on the anger and maybe not being able Mm -hmm. or willing to look at it. Mm, Like this is a thing that needs to be done, but I wish I didn't have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think Hosea and Jeremiah are taking, I, I don't think we need to make them being saying the same thing. But they are wrestling with this issue of how do we think about God's anger and destruction and compassion all yeah. at the same time. And it is it is difficult. I like that image of thinking of God sort of shielding God's face from having to look upon the damage that's been done. It also is disturbing to me yeah. at the same time, of course. Yeah. I mean, it really, it is incredibly complicated. And I think that's part of, that's part of the thing about Jeremiah is Jeremiah is sorting through this, I mean, how do we hold the compassion of God together with Mm -hmm. the theological idea that God has brought about Mm -hmm. this destruction? And what do we imagine comes next? Like it's. Yeah. And to keep in mind, you know, that Jeremiah is processing the trauma of war in real time. Or so is yeah. the, such is the narrative setting anyway that yeah. he doesn't know how to think through all of it logically. He is thinking through what he sees in the streets and trying to relate that to his understanding of the Deuteronomic theology that God does punish wrongdoing and also this belief in God's compassion. We shouldn't expect him to have pulled together a systematic theology of what is happening to him. <laughs> That is true. Exactly. That is true. Yes. So Amy, right there in the break between verse five and six, or in the CEB, it's actually just one big sentence. There is Mm. this idea of the destruction and the hiding of the face. And then there's a, but now I will heal and mend them. And then, then there's this really positive and sort of beautiful prophecy. I'm just focused on that shift Mm. from the one to the other. And how to make that move or hold them together at the same time. Yeah. Can you help me with that? I mean, it's almost like, I I love how you pointed out that it's, it's really, it's like the same sentence. It's like in the same breath. We can't mm-hmm. end the breath until we've gotten to the healing. We can't stay in that, in the place of destruction. And I was reading it. Comment, Jewish commentary on this section this morning, and it it said there's a midrash from uh, Song of Songs that that says in order to prepare a dressing, you have to inspect the wound. Like mm. there has to be some pause where you actually look at what has happened and what it needs. But here, God prepare God. It's like God prepares the dressing before the wound. 
Mm. Maybe because God knows exactly what the wound will be because God is going to inflict the wound. Mm. It always feels so sort of abrupt to me. Yeah. (laughs) But I also, I guess if I try to be, if I try to empathize with God, it's a little difficult for me to empathize with God in, in this section of scripture. But if I try to, I can, I can imagine that God too is, is eager to move past this and, and get to the healing part, you know? That makes a lot of sense to me. And sort of the idea that the, the healing is ultimately the goal. And that is the yeah. promise that is here. But for, for whatever reason, and we can wrestle with that theologically, but there is a wounding that needs to happen before the healing can take place. But God is sort of reassuring here that like there is a purpose, there, there is a purpose and a positive outcome to the whole thing that God has in mind. But y'all are going to have to go through some stuff yeah. before you can get there. There's this PBS documentary. It's not, it's, not, it's about the Holocaust and it's, it's not really a documentary. It's sort of a drama, but it's about the trial of God in Auschwitz during the Holocaust. And this these people who are Jewish men who are in the barracks and they're having an argument about what God is doing. Mm-hmm. And it's really powerful. I use it in my Job class and it's worth, it's worth watching, but they sort of working on these theologies of God's destruction. And one of them that they come up with is about surgery. Uh, ultimately actually, there is the healing about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, surgery is ultimately healing but it requires a cutting in order to be healing. And if you don't know the healing is coming, then the cutting just feels like violence. And, you know, there are other, many other ways of explaining that. But to me, what you were saying sort of was leading me in that direction. I'm really glad you said that, Bobby, because I'm, I am uncomfortable with that theology, Mm -hmm. but it does. So I'm glad you can put it in the mouth of, of other people who have who really have more grounds to comment on such things than I do. But it does remind me of, of the kind of, I mean, surgery is violence. It, it is. is violence against your body. And then there is, you know, for a purpose, and the ultimate purpose is healing. And it is good to know what that, what the trajectory of that healing is going to look like as you're going into it, because you you sort of need that hope. But um, that's that. I'll have to I'll have to look that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we come back to this from time to time. But one of the things that has been helpful to me in thinking through all of this stuff is thinking about how does injustice come to an end? And we have the story in Exodus that God enacted violence against Pharaoh in order to set the Israelites free from Egypt. And here we have another situation in which Jeremiah has been pointing out these injustices that are being done. And it's almost as though you can't just get from an unjust system to an ideal new way of being without there being some sort of dismantling of the old system, which is inevitably going to hurt. And it's not just going to hurt the people who are in charge. It's going to have societal ramifications. And I know I would like to think it doesn't have to be that way, and maybe it doesn't, but I think the large sweep of human history shows that in order for there to be a sort of reconstruction, there has to be a deconstruction on the on the front end. Yeah. And that seems to be at least Jeremiah's understanding of what's happening. 
And I'm really glad you brought in that note that you pointed out at the beginning of this chapter, which is that it's it's not just the palace that is destroyed. It's people's mm-hmm. individual houses. Hi, I'm Terry Peterson, minister of St. John's Church of Scotland in Gurich, west of Glasgow on the Scottish coast. And I am the liturgy writer for Bible Worm, which means I get to spend a lot of time listening to Bobby and Amy. And that is a great joy. It is fascinating to hear them read and talk through stories I thought I knew pretty well since I'm starting my third time through the narrative lectionary now. I always come away with more ideas than I can fit into a liturgy or a sermon, and working with them has deepened my own spiritual life as I write liturgy that follows the contours of their conversations. I appreciate that they don't shy away from the difficult parts, and that they always find connections between these ancient texts and our contemporary life. And it's fun for me to work those connections into liturgy that empowers worshiping communities to speak to and about God in new ways. If you join the Bible Worm Patreon at the Liturgy Worm level or higher, you'll have access to those liturgies and prayers that you can use or adapt, as well as early access to the podcast. Or there are other levels with different benefits, including Bible studies, access to the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this incredible resource for people of faith around the world. And now, back to this week's podcast. There's much more we could say, but I think we should move on to the next section. Okay. I'm picking up in verse 10. The Lord proclaims, you have said about this place, it is a wasteland without humans or animals. Yet in the ravaged and uninhabited towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, the sounds of joy and laughter and the voices of the bride and the bridegroom will again be heard. So will the voices of those who say, as thank offerings are brought to the Lord's temple, Give thanks to the Lord of heavenly forces, for the Lord is good and his kindness lasts forever. I will bring back the captives of this land as they were before, says the Lord. The Lord of heavenly forces proclaims, This wasteland without humans or animals and all its towns will again become pastures for shepherds to care for their flocks. Shepherds will again count their flocks in the towns of the highlands, the western foothills and the arid southern plain, in the land of Benjamin, as well as in the outlying areas of Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, says the Lord. Mm. The image that's here twice is a wasteland without humans or animals. I'm just curious what you make of that image as a way of talking about the destruction that's taking place. I think the first answer that popped into my head is it, it it's a, on the one hand, it's really overwhelmingly sad. And, you know, I think about these images of places after a war when everything has been destroyed and uh, <laughs> everything has been destroyed, like the natural world and the, you know, cultured mm-hmm. whatever world, whatever you want to call that. But at the same time, it it it's, I mean, I guess in this context, maybe like a, a clean slate, like a place where things could mm-hmm. possibly grow again but mm-hmm. haven't. So it's like this open period where it's like a question mark. Like, will will this be a desolate wasteland forever or can something new sprout here? The way you said that made me think of two things. 
One is we've been talking about how the decisions made in positions of power affect humans mm. who are not in positions of power. And the way you were talking about that extrapolates that also then to the natural world, animals and plants that yeah. also pay a great price for human sinfulness. And I think that image of the wasteland without animals captures that in a really important way. Mm-hmm. The other thing is you were sort of helping me connect this to that Isaiah passage, especially from a, a couple of weeks ago now, where the vineyard is uh, overrun or where the tree is chopped down. And this is an even more like one step even past that, yeah. which is it has been com- everything has been completely eradicated. And yet there is still hope of a, of a new future. Yeah. We get that sort of new future set in several different ways here, which I, I think are really lovely. The choices, the joy and laughter of a bride and groom, thank mm-hmm. offerings coming to the temple, shepherds counting their flocks. Are there any of those images that stand out to you in a particular way? Yeah, actually, maybe more than one of them. But, I, but I'll say first that the bride and bridegroom, you know, if you've been reading through the whole book of Jeremiah, three times already, Jeremiah has said the opposite of this, that mm. the sound of joy will be silenced and will be banished. Like that's, that's part of what's coming here. So to read it here as it will come back really sort of feels like a reversal or, or a new beginning. Like it really, it really stands in sort of contradistinction to the specific Mm -hmm. curses. I don't know, negative prophecies that have been, that have been in the air already. And the other thing it, it made me think of is just news stories that I'm, that I'm hearing about the, the war scenes in the Middle East and these, you know, moments of brief joy where people go through with a planned wedding and not at all in the way that it was, in, you know, that it was planned, but figure out how to get people together in a safe place for a short amount of time to be really intentional about trying to, you know, bring that continuity of joy in the face of suffering. It's a, it's a powerful thing to, powerful thing to do. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate the way that you keep pulling us back to the broader context of Jeremiah. And, you know, even if you think of it in that first commissioning that Jeremiah gets about digging up, pulling down, destroying, demolishing, building and planting. And so we're really at that moment between the four destructive verbs and the constructive, hopeful verbs. But if you forget, if you forget the part that came before, you just end up with this sort of naive hopefulness. But when you read it the way you're reading it, you can see this sort of long stretch of The prophecies have all been one way. You're not going to hear this anymore. And now suddenly, now you're going to hear it again. It it just feels different. Yeah. If you've been hearing, there's not going to be any more joy. And now there's possibility of joy. Yeah. The image of the shepherd, it sort of lingers over it for kind of a weirdly long time. It's so lovely. What are you seeing there? Well, the thing that was standing out to me is just... Uh, this is like just people doing their, living their daily life. It is not a, like your wedding day is like a particular day of joyfulness, which is great. And I'm glad that people get to celebrate that again. But this is just some shepherds counting their sheep, you know, doing, doing their thing that they do 
uh, every day. And the specificity of it's going to be in the highlands and in the foothills and in the southern plain and in Benjamin and outside Jerusalem, to me, that's just trying to capture this sense of it's, it's everybody everywhere. They've all been pulled into this destruction together and they're all going to be part of this renewal together. Yeah. What did well, you said? That's a really lovely image. Were you seeing something other or more? I mean, there? I love the way that you said that. That it's just the sort of the normal everyday, which which after destruction we sort of realize what an enormous blessing. How many enormous blessings are already sort of baked into our normal everyday? My translation. I can't remember if yours had this turn of phrase exactly, but I really loved it. Sheep shall pass again under the hands of the one who counts them, mm. which I feel like could uh, certainly could be shepherds. Yes, and also you know we could look at one thing that I didn't say about the marriage metaphor was I mean it's not explicit, but maybe there is also we've been talking about God and Israel and the sort yeah. of various metaphors used for them. You could import some of that idea. Yeah. And same with sort of shepherd and flock here. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's just a writing, uh, writing, R-I-G-H-T-ing <laughs> <laughs> of, of everything that's been toppled. Amy, this description here of people coming to offer thanks in the temple, mm. I'm just thinking about that in the context of where Jeremiah is in the middle of the siege with God saying, I'm so angry, I'm about to destroy you. And here's an image of people giving thanks to God for God's goodness and kindness that lasts forever. I'm just like, I'm just caught in that tension between the reality on the ground at the moment Jeremiah is making this prophecy and this vision of God's restoration and the receiving of that as endless goodness. Yes. I don't know what to say about that. I just am noticing it in the text. It's really hard to see how to get from here to there. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it, it really, it feels like a farther away sort of vision because it's not just about a restoration of calm. It's about a restoration of like enduring trust mm -hmm. and like a, a behavior, but also sort of an internal state among the, the people and they haven't even hit bottom yet. Like right. They're still things a year are gonna away. get worse mm -hmm. first. So it so it's good to know that things will eventually be repaired, but it's I feel like this is one like the other ones God could just like make happen. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is a weird theology that I have, but I feel like this one it it, it, it something has to be requited. There has to be a reciprocity here. Like the mm. people have to have to want to do this and have to believe in that enduring mm -hmm. goodness of God. Mm -hmm. I love that, Amy. So you're the sense, the people's sense of trust in God may be somewhat shattered in this moment or in the year to come, but there will come a moment where they will be able to trust again. Yeah. And this is envisioning that even if we're not in that place just yet. I also appreciate that you keep pointing us back. Like I keep wanting to breathe like, ah, oh, we're at the end, but you keep pointing us back to they're in the middle 
And historically, that is exactly true. We're a year into the siege. We're still a year away from the worst of it. Mm. And so the, this turn Jeremiah is making is a turn that he's making in the middle of a traumatic situation. He's able to see a future hope, even though there is absolutely zero evidence of that future hope on the ground. It's just, I don't, it's just a testament to what he's able to see and offer to a people who are in the middle of, of deep, deep suffering. Yeah. That brings us to the narrative lectionary text for this week, (laughs) 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 which is Jeremiah 13, 14 to 18, which I, I mean, I, I feel like it will ring differently now than if we had just started right here. Mm -hmm. I hope in a, I hope in a helpful way. So picking up in verse 14. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill my gracious promise with the people of Israel and Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will raise up a righteous branch from David's line, who will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is what he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord proclaims, David will always have one of his descendants sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests will always have someone in my presence to make entirely burned offerings and grain offerings and to present sacrifices. Mm. So here, this future promise that we've been talking about in these larger terms about the bride and the bridegroom and the shepherd and the sheep, people coming to the temple, it takes on a more at least the way it reads here, an individual specificity, talking about a a branch, a righteous branch from the line of David. Can you talk a little bit about that imagery of righteous branch from David's line? Yeah, was was it Isaiah that we read that had that sort of like a tree that had been cut down, but there was a little, yeah, a little some, sprig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isaiah little sp- 11, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the sort of, imagery that is that is alive for me here that even though so much of the thriving of this people has been cut back like so much so that it might not be obvious that they would continue at all and yet there is this little this little twig <laughs> that little twig of righteousness that grows and it's going back to these, you know, these promises from previous generations that were made to David's lineage and a sort of enduring hope that maybe, maybe the kingship is not a doomed entity, even though it has seen, <laughs> has not been doing too well. Like it really, I mean, I don't know, Bobby, it's, it seems, <laughs> I should not call God naive. Okay. I'm not going to call God <laughs> naive, but like, this is really, I feel like this this the the hope in this dream is getting bigger and bigger and harder and harder to believe because now it's like exact precisely the institutions that caused all these problems in the first place right. for which the entire people many innocent people have been destroyed there's a hope that we're going to like we're going to the vision is we're going to go back to that model that model is not broken right and it's going to work. Right. 
Isn't that like the definition of insanity? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we had a lot of hope in David, and then that sort of fell apart. And then we had a lot of hope in Solomon, and then that fell apart. And then we thought, here comes Hezekiah, it's going to be better now. And then that fell apart. We actually had a righteous king, Josiah. It was too late. (laughs) And then it was punishment for his grandfather's sins. And so, yeah, we, we keep doing the same thing and it keeps not working. And so like going back to that same well over and over again, but, but that's what we have here. But it, there's, there's two things that seem a little bit different here. Mm. One of them, I don't know that is that different, but the king is going to be called Adonai Sidkenu. The Lord is our righteousness. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that just name just seems significant to me. That's what you would call the king. Your thoughts about that? So in the this might be a Hebrew Greek issue again. In the Hebrew, it is not he shall be called, it is she shall be called. So it seems to be talking oh, about right. the the people of Israel. Which would still be good. That would Trauma. still be a good shift. Yeah but it doesn't speak specifically to the kingship. I like that, Amy. So if so, she will be called the Lord is our righteousness. And if you take that she as the people or the land as you're doing, where does that take you? It kind of, you know, even though this, it's in this, in this section that is talking about the lineage of David and sort of the leadership structures, in some way it, it for me, puts the spotlight back on the broader group, yeah, the, you know, the people like there's maybe there's not just going to be one, <laughs> one person that's right. going to be able to solve this problem for you. Yeah. It's, it's just a, it's a broader picture for me about what the future is going to look like. And that somehow, some way this people are going to figure out how to live in a way that really exemplifies God's God's idea of what you should be doing in the world, you know, like the the godly righteousness that we should be bringing into the world. And then there's also a kingship. But I think (laughs) (laughs) maybe I've pushed the kingship aside a little too far because it really is right, like sandwiched between two things about kingship. So I don't know. How do you hold those together? Well, now that you're talking about that, I really like it. Well, like where I was headed when I was thinking Adonai Tzidkenu is about the king is to say, now we're not trusting in the king's righteousness, although we just said that he's going to be a righteous branch, but we're trusting in the Lord's righteousness, mm. which has kind of been mm-hmm. the goal of kingship since Deuteronomy 17. That's right. That's right. It's not the person. It's the person's orientation to God. So, so that's where mm-hmm. I was headed. But now that you're talking, I really love that, that. So now what we've got, if you read it as the people, then you've got the righteous branch. You've got a people who say the Lord is our righteousness. So the people are not entirely dependent on the king, but they have their own role to play in making sure that the land remains righteous, which I think it also has been the vision since the beginning. Mm-hmm. But it seems like in this time of king of the monarchy that we've had this sort of singularity, like good king or bad king, that determines how things go. But it doesn't have to be that way, right? If you've got righteous people, then the, the role of the king becomes less crucial. Yeah. I love that connection you made between the Tzemach Tzedakah, the the righteous branch, and this, you know, second, God is our righteousness. The third thing that's here that you might not expect in a prophecy of a Davidic king 
is this reference in verse 18 to the Levitical priests mm-hmm. and sacrifices. Yeah. That, we don't always see that in reference to the kings. So can you talk yeah. about that being here? I think the first thing in my mind is, you know, it, sometimes it's easy to read the prophets as saying there's a problem with sacrifice itself yeah. and we shouldn't be sacrificing when in fact, I think usually the prophets are saying it, the problem is not that we're sacrificing. It's that we think all we have to do is sacrifice right. and we can forget about all the other stuff. Right. And so this really holds up an, an image that like goes, goes back to, <laughs> uh, I was going to say some really short period of time at this point, but where we have a functioning kingship where the king is righteous and the people are righteous. And that is precisely like the foundation that you need to be able to have this really like beautiful, intimate way of relating between the people and God, which is basically like sharing a meal in a metaphorical way. But you need all those other things to be in place in order for the sacrificial system to really be as connecting as it has the potential to be. I really like that, Amy. And thinking about the way that the the religious community, the priesthood has a role to play in this just society, I think is really important. And what you were saying reminded me of a conversation we were having. I think it was in our economic justice series we did a couple of summers ago. And we kept coming back to this phrase, the people are seeking a religious solution to an ethical problem. Yeah. And to me, that's this. And what you're saying here is the you can't just cover over injustice with religion. Right. You have to like have a just society and then you can be properly religious. I, I like that connection. I, I do think that's what is, is happening here. It's entirely possible to sort of leave out. And sometimes it does happen where you leave out the religious side, right? You've got God's king in yeah. place and you've got the people and like that, that's all you need. So I like that the, there is a role for the priesthood here. But it's not the it's not the first rule, right? It's not right. that people are going to come and make sacrifices first. It's it's sort of the last. It is the sign that all the other things are are working correctly. Mm, I like that way of thinking of it. Yeah, it's the last piece. So, Amy, I'm assuming that this is read as a messianic prophecy in your tradition. Is yeah, I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> we mean, don't t- we don't talk about messianism a lot, but yes, it. I mean it. Yes, I would say yes. It's an interesting one because Jeremiah is predicting a future Davidic king, but there actually is never going to be another Davidic king historically. Zedekiah mm-hmm. is the last one. And so this is a prophecy that doesn't in that first sense actually come true, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons that then Christian tradition reads this as a prediction of Jesus, which of course is why this is, an appropriate text for Advent is it's mm-hmm. anticipating that Jesus as the righteous branch. I don't know what to say about that other than to say that that's the way the Christian tradition has understood this text to be yeah. pointing forward to a future, future king. And then when you get that language about the prophecy of an eternal kingship for David in verse 17, which is a reference back to second Samuel seven, mm-hmm. that that's Jesus's reign. That's going to come and, and establish that line forever. But I don't think that's what Jeremiah has in mind in the first instance. I think Jeremiah really thinks there's going to be a king, there's going to be a priest, there's going to be a righteous people, yeah. and it's going to, it's all going to work out we're gonna, together. Yeah, finally all the pieces are going to fit all together gonna... as they should. Mm-hmm. 
Amy, I feel like we spent a very long time talking about the part of this text that's not the narrative lectionary and a fairly short time talking about the narrative lectionary. But I've kind of said what I want to say about this. Are there are there things in this last 14 to 18 that we should make sure we lift up? This is where I feel like I, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. 14 to 18 on their own feel like this sort of disembodied yes. hope. Yes. That for me is not that useful. Yes. It is nice to have a, a promise that everything is going to be okay again and that everything, not even everything's going to be okay again. It's sort of like, we're going to go like back to the, fir- we've stripped everything down and we're going to just sort of rebuild it. And this time it's going to work. And I don't know. I just, I guess I don't have a lot. I guess I don't have a lot more to say about it. This isn't this isn't the text that I would like turn to when I most need a hope well, a word of hope. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not a helpful conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting for you to say it that way because I agree with you when I when I just read that 14 to 18 I thought I don't know how to ironically I don't know how to bring a word of hope out of that because it's sort of a naive sounding hope. Yeah. And then so a lot of the work for me is like, but when you can say that within the context of one through 13, it sounds different. It sounds, now it sounds, here is a hope against hope that is being articulated in the middle of a siege from prison when the houses and palaces have been torn down to reinforce the defenses, which you know are going to fail and that it's going to get bad. Here's a word of hope. Yes. And that it's that act of hoping in the midst of all that other stuff that to me is really useful yes. rather than this disembodied hope of just those verses. I, I totally agree with you. I think that is the magic and the power of this chapter. So if we're reading it that way and you're thinking about our world that we live in now and trying to bring a, I was going to say a word of hope, but I actually what I really mean is something useful out of this text that speaks to the context and the life of faith, what would you say? Yeah. I mean, trying to sit with that question of what it is to receive, truly receive a prophecy of hope and restoration before you have even hit bottom. Like, you know, it's going to get worse and to hold the belief that it is the very deity who is going to save you, who is going to make it worse first. I don't know, maybe to some people that feels good because at least someone's in control. But to me, that does not feel good. I want, I want to say two things about restoration and hope in the context of Jeremiah and in the context of, of war. One of them is that two chapters earlier in Jeremiah 31, there's another sort of vision of what of a very joyful sort of exuberant vision of when the exiles will come back to Jerusalem and they'll be so happy to come and everything's going to be great again. And it's, it's almost jarring to read it in the context of like, you've just heard how bad things are going to get and that hasn't even happened yet. And so it, it just feels there's this strange disconnect in me when I read the joyful vision. And there's a part where God says, I will bring them back with compassion. Mm. But the word that's used for compassion is not the word that I would have expected for compassion. It is tachanunim, which is 
plead pleading. I will bring mm. them like it's usually a word that's used to describe prayers that my community offers on weekdays that's like begging, like a- asking for forgiveness and asking for help. And for me, it has been really helpful to imagine that there is some kind of real repair that happens in there between the relation that, that there there's a real breach in the relationship between God and Israel, both because of Israel's behavior and because of God's violent response. Yeah. And there is repair that happens on both sides of that, Mm. that it's not just Israel. Yes, Israel has to grapple with what it's done and figure out how to live righteously. And also there is a compassion that, that sort of melds into the world of, of begging the people to come back because God needs the people Mm. too. Mm And I say that knowing that that's not, <laughs> that's not actually what's in this chapter, but I felt the same way reading this chapter in some ways that there's, it, it's trying to give you hope, but it's at this moment that I just don't know, I don't know how to receive, I don't know how to receive the hope mm-hmm. while they're still going down, while they're still descending. So I think that's a terrible answer, Bobby, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I don't, um, I don't know what else I can, what I can offer this this one's hard for me. It's Why a is a hopeful one. chapter hard for me? What is wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's that issue of trying to articulate hope when things are still getting worse. Yeah. And they need to still get worse. That's I think that's the extra part is God is saying not just it's bad, but like it needs, like it is bad for a reason. Mm-hmm. And which to me is partly hard because it feels true to the moment in which we live. Things feel bad. Hope feels naive when you just say it'll be fine. And there is this sort of sense that there is some undoing that needs to be done. In Jeremiah, the situation is that the people have been living unjustly, right? They've been violating the Deuteronomic covenant which is all about justice for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. It is also about other things, but it, you know, following the ways of other nations and things like that, following other worldviews that are given to you. But at its core, it's about justice. And here the people, you know, when they say uh, the Lord is our righteousness, that's what it's talking about is right living. And so, you know, they have gotten off the track and they have created a world that is unjust, that is causing damage on a daily basis to the most vulnerable people. And that has to stop. And part of what's so hard about this passage, I think, is acknowledging that that is true in the time of Jeremiah, and I think in our own time, And that the undoing of things, whether it's God's doing or whether it is the natural way of things, is painful. But before there can be hope that the world could yet still be different, the world that has been built on injustice has to come apart. I think it sounds really differently when you speak from a position like I do, as someone for whom the current system works quite well. And so this is all about loss to me. There are lots of people and many in my, in my 
circle for whom the current system does not work at all. And so the notion that it might fall apart doesn't actually sound that much worse than what they're already living through. Yeah. And so the, you know, there is a hopefulness in this system that has kept you vulnerable might fall apart and something else might replace it. That's actually Mm -hmm. a hopeful message, Mm -hmm. even though that process Mm -hmm. is going to hurt for everybody. Yeah. Within the context of Advent, which is where my tradition is, I think this is a really hard passage and a really important one because it is exactly the temptation you're talking about to read 14 to 18 as disembodied hope, sing jingle bells, and say the world is going to be great, y'all, without recognizing that the first movement of Advent is recognizing that the world as it is currently constructed is not reflective of God's righteousness. And that in order for that hope to be embraced, there's some work to be done, and it might well be work that hurts a lot. Then you can be hopeful about the future. Mm-hmm. But if, you're, if you don't acknowledge that that is true, then the hope is, uh, it's a false hope and maybe even a damaging hope. It's not, I mean, I don't, I don't want to stand up and say this in a church on a Sunday, right? I don't even really want to yeah. say that on a podcast, you know, yeah. but I think that is the world that we, that we live in. And if we, if we want to say these hopeful things, we have to acknowledge that there is pain that has to be, and loss that has to be experienced. And maybe we're in the middle of it. Maybe we're partway through, but it's, it's not done. And then we can be hopeful. You know, I, I pushed back a little bit against the surgery metaphor earlier, but I think that's the most helpful one in my mind right now. And I, I remember my mom talking about different things she's experienced that are arguably very painful, but if you know nothing is wrong and, and everyone is, and the doctors are here to help you and they will do violence against your body, but it is ultimately going to be okay, that's a very different thing than experiencing all of that same pain at the hands of someone who hates you and doesn't mean yeah. well for you. Yeah. So I, I, I can, I can, I can recognize the difference there. Yeah. The other thing that I just want to lift up again is that Jeremiah himself as a prophet, the ability for him to be in prison in the middle of this moment when everything is falling apart not to say something that sounds naively stupid to people who are suffering, but yet something that offers hope for the future, mm-hmm. even while it acknowledges the horror of the present. It is a remarkable thing that Jeremiah has done. And I think the argument might be that faith communities today need to try to do the same thing, which is a difficult, maybe impossible task. But I think that Jeremiah here gives us a, a model yeah. for what, could be the voice of the community of faith in a time like this. Yeah. Yeah. Not an easy one, but a true one. All right, Amy. Well, um, happy Advent. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm going to start working on our calendar, Bobby. It's going to be great. Next week we are in what is a traditional Advent text in my tradition and quite a a famous text just in general. Mm -hmm. We're in Isaiah chapter 40 beginning of the post-exilic or the end of the exile, Isaiah. Really lovely, lovely text. Yeah. 
It's a beautiful one. I look forward to it. Me too. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Hey, y'all. It's Amy. It's about 24 hours after Bobby and I recorded that last episode, and that text has just been nagging at me, and I've felt unsettled with my concluding comments at the end. And so I've thought a little more and want to add a little postscript. Here it is. The thing about this text, the beauty and the really awfully big challenge of it, is that it asks us to hold both the real and legitimate suffering and fear and uncertainty alongside hope that a seemingly impossible dream will yet come true. It feels particularly pointed to me that at this moment in the text, at this moment that the hope is offered, we have not yet hit bottom. We are far from the bottom. This text is not saying, it's all up from here, your suffering is over. It doesn't actually tell us anything about what will happen tomorrow or even what will happen to our own bodies or in our own lifetime. It's not that kind of prediction. And it doesn't tell us not to be afraid or that the suffering isn't real. It says what seems impossible is not impossible. At any moment, it could be the moment that God will break through and bring this vision of peace. It reminds me of our conversation about Sarah and how she laughed to hear that she'd have a child. Everything in her life, everything she had ever known, indicated very clearly to her that this was not the case. Sometimes in those painful moments, the certainty of resignation to that fate, to that loss, is more comfortable, is almost easier than perpetuating this state of uncertainty forever. So Sarah laughed at this truly ridiculous prediction And then the impossible happened to her. It sure did. As we talked about in that episode, though, this doesn't negate the suffering of women who cannot bear children. It doesn't promise that God is going to make a habit of doing this kind of thing. And it doesn't tell anyone, except Sarah in this case, how things will turn out. All it says is, the impossible is not impossible. Whether or not you can hold that vast expanse between the suffering of this moment and the promise of relief from that suffering in some mysterious, hazy future, they are both true. It is so easy and so tempting to try to use the hope to erase the suffering or to let the suffering take up all the space and leave no room for hope. But this chapter asks us to hold both. Hope should never be wielded as a weapon against those who are suffering, but nor should we let our world become so small, let our imagination shrink down so tightly that we can no longer dream of peace and envision it and taste it in our souls to remember what it looks like, because that is what will hasten its coming. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit
patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next time when we'll host a special live episode of the podcast from our retreat with a group of pastors hosted by the Omaha Presbyterian Seminary Foundation. We'll be discussing Isaiah 40, 1-11. Till then, keep on digging.